Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. So in the book of Jude, which, by the way, it, it takes like five minutes to read the whole book. So if you just want to like accomplish something in your Bible reading today, just go read the book of Jude. It's, it's, a, it's short. It's really short. It's also extremely important and impactful. So um, I'm going to read a couple of verses at the beginning of the book of Jude. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved. Although I made every effort to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt it necessary to write and urge you to contend earnestly for the faith entrusted once for all to the saints. For certain men have crept in among you unnoticed, uh, ungodly ones who were designated long ago for condemnation, and they turn the grace of our God into a license for immorality, and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ." Okay, why lift this passage up today? Um, Because you and I, as Christians, have to be very discerning about people who put themselves forward under the moniker of Christ. They call themselves Christian. They identify as Christian. They teach things that are either absurdly contradictory to the faith faith once delivered, um, or they include aspects of the faith that was entrusted to us once delivered, but they, you know, add other things to it. They add Buddhism. They add Hinduism. They add um, meism, whatever that is, like, right? They add all kinds of things to the faith. That is called syncretism. That is not called Christianity. And when we say, when, when, when Jude says um, they've crept in among you unnoticed, what he is identifying is they're in the church. They are in the church. They are ordained. They have big hats. They have fancy titles. They run retreat centers. They write books. And they lead you down a path of destruction. And so we have to learn to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered um, for all uh, the saints. So I lift up Jude today as a book that will take you very little time to read. I commend it to you. And then I invite you. I invite you to contend earnestly for the faith entrusted to us. Next up, I'm going to talk with Dr. Peter Kapsner about, well, one such creeper inner who is absolutely leading people down a path of destruction by saying that, yeah, well, you know, Christ is, uh, he's a good, like, uh, fast track uh, to, to getting in good with God. But, you know, there's lots of other ways. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Peter Kapsner is with us. He is a professor at the University uh, of Northwestern at St. Paul. You would think I would know the name of it since we all work for them. Uh, The University of Northwestern St. Paul, um, among other things. Hey, welcome back, man. Thanks, Carmen. I have to confess, I was a little worried about where that intro and the segment was going. I thought maybe you were referencing me and you were going to rebuke me live on air in that moment. No, I, I don't. I'm not really an on air rebuker. Well, and I appreciate that's that. Not, that's not really part of my. I mean, if I if, you know, if I felt like that were necessary, I would definitely follow the Matthew model <laughs> and, uh, you know, face to face, one on one. Yeah. No. Well, and I love um, that actually you brought up Jude just quickly because literally, Carmen, good. yesterday or I guess two days ago in my class, we were just talking about the scriptures a little bit and, and why we tend to give primacy to some scriptures over others, almost as if we treat the, some as being super God-breathed and others as being lesser so. And Jude is a really fascinating book. We even brought up the passage about the idea from Jude uh, 1 verse 9 that says, even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, and then kind of on from there. And there's fascinating things within the text that seem troubling when you first read them, but boy, you begin to mine them out, and it really does give us a much more expansive view of the kingdom. So it's pretty funny that you're reading a a pretty lesser-known book. Not many people have read Jude. I I confess, I certainly didn't growing up. 25 verses. It doesn't even take five minutes to read it. Right. Um, And and yet, like, okay, so verse 9 that you lift up, um, I mean, I, I, couldn't some creative Christian write an entire novel just based on that one verse? I mean, what was Michael cont- contending, um, disputing with the devil over the body of Moses? What, what, yeah. what, what does that even mean? Well, absolutely. Um, but, like, that would be exciting. And then Michael does exactly what we should all do, which is not seek to really argue long with uh, the enemy of our souls, um, but comes right out and says, the Lord rebuke you. Like, right, that's a model of of how we should contend for the faith, especially when there are those who are openly opposing it. So that's the pivot to this conversation about a guy named Richard Rohr. Yeah. Um, so he's got quite a following. Um, he does not serve in what you and I would regard as um, a local church setting. Um, he has a retreat center and he writes books and there are lots of people being led astray by his teaching. Yeah, there really are. I, it, it's interesting how much he has actually emerged from sort of relative obscurity in terms of his influence into having a really massive following. And and because I was uh, maybe an early reader of Richard Rohr, I've sort of seen this emerge in some different ways and even really seen a lot of his theological thinking change over these last 20 years or so, or at least emerge in some different kinds of ways. I will say I... Uh, in reading some of his early literature, I really sympathize with his view that we need to sort of, including with our propositional-based faith, and what I mean by that is what we believe about God and what we say about God, sort of the propositional truths about God that are so important. I think Richard Rohr tapped into some of the early maybe emptiness if we don't include along with those propositions, a a real relational-based faith with God. And so he began to practice some of the spiritual disciplines of uh, meditation, in particular silence and solitude. He was a very early advocate for those things to help bring some richness into our souls. And he has some pretty compelling writings early on including a book on the Enneagram, which is sort of all the rage among at least young people today, for sure, in terms of trying to understand themselves. And so there were some early writings that I thought, huh, this is actually pretty compelling stuff. But you could even see in his early writings some of the early themes and threads that I think you and I are going to talk about here this morning, including things like the cosmic Christ and where he went with that. And so Mm -hmm. uh, it's been a really interesting thing. The last piece I'd say before throwing it back to you is that uh, he really has tapped into 
the millennial generation of the nuns who are are seeing themselves as spiritual but not religious and they're very compelled by some of his writing that really deconstructs the institutional church in many historic ways that we think about our faith uh, in order to pursue sort of some sort of amalgamation of spiritualism from a wide variety of religious traditions. All right. So you and I are talking about this today because The New Yorker has run a piece on Richard Rohr um, in which they describe him reordering the universe. Well, let's just pause for a moment and recognize it's not up to any human being to reorder the universe, um, nor to improve upon what God has revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And so I think that's a part of this conversation. It's a um, it's a conversation about who is in an, who is in a position to say what is um, and who and who is in a position to say who God is and and how God intends to allow access to himself. I think that's really the key part of this. Uh, the situation is that I was I was in, actually in a church last night uh, speaking to. Uh, a couple hundred youth just around topics of sexuality. And, and one of the lead pastors there said something really uh, meaningful and impactful to me when he said, we've really shifted away from sola scriptura, meaning the scriptures as a place of primary authority for understanding the kingdom. And from that place, being willing to bend our knee and surrender to God's kingdom, believing that as we do so, he will refill us with his shalom, his peace, his way of life in the midst of this world. He said, we've shifted from sola scriptura, that historical idea, to what he called sola experientia. And Christopher Yuan has also used this term a bit, meaning that our experience in life and and what we see and and what we perceive to be true about life um, really becomes a place of primacy. And because that's true, then my experience here in Western culture can't be any more or better or different than somebody's experience in Eastern culture and vice versa. The the experience of the Buddhist can't be better than uh, or worse than the experience of the Christian or the experience of the person of the Islamic faith isn't better or worse than. We lean into experiences. And from that place, what Richard Rohr is beginning to posit is that there's always been this cosmic Christ, this Christ that is different in some ways than the Christ revealed in the man Jesus those 2,000 years ago. And this cosmic Christ is always attempting to reveal himself through love through a wide variety of religious traditions. And so if you experience Jesus in Hinduism... If you experience Jesus, and I'm using Jesus sort of in air quotes here, in uh, Buddhism or any other religious tradition, well, then you're just simply experiencing what has always been true about the universe, this ever-loving God who is seeking to find his way into the lives of human beings through whatever religious tradition. And, And of course, that becomes problematic on a number of levels. All right. So a few things that we want to uh, that we want to point out. Um, Jesus Christ is coexistent and co-eternal as the second member of uh, of the Trinity of the Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are distinct members of the Trinity. And so when we're talking about the spirit of Christ, are we talking about something distinct from um, the Holy Spirit? And what does it mean for uh, Christ to indwell an individual. We have references in the Old Testament or references in the New Testament to what happened to the prophets of the Old Testament in terms of being um, filled with the Spirit of Christ, and that was what gave them the power to prophesy future events, um, particularly about Christ. Certainly the knowledge of who Christ is and the plan of redemption in Christ has been in place from before the beginning of time. Right. And so um, when we come back, I want to talk specifically about the way Richard Rohr distinguishes what he is teaching and his theology from what we would consider Christian theology. And so, uh, because I think that understanding the distinctions here is important. So continuing my conversation in just a moment 
with Peter Kapner, Kapsner about Richard Rohr. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. At humor, getting getting us uh, reading today in the Book of Jude. Um, I continue to commend that to you as you uh, as you listen today and consider where in the word you're going to be. Uh, I would lift up the Book of Jude. Peter Kapsner and I are talking about Richard Rohr, and we're talking about a piece posted in the New Yorker um, about Richard Rohr reordering the universe. Um, it is an article about the evolving theology of um, of a man who has lots of followers. Uh, and so here here are a couple of sentences from this piece. Jesus is referred to not as the incarnation of the living God, second member of the Trinity, but as an incarnation of uh, of this spirit of God's love for the world, um, and quote, following him is our best shortcut to mm. accessing that love. Uh, this spirit can also be found through the practices of other religions like Buddhist meditation uh, and communing with nature. And he also argues that this cosmic Christ um, who uh, who was and and who became incarnate in time is, quote, still being revealed. Now, he's so close to the truth there um, because we do talk about the the reality that Jesus is the co-eternal second member of the Trinity. He has always been. He will always be. Um, but in, in all of that, he'll always be Jesus. Yeah. And <laughs> when you read that phrase, and I was really uh, captured by that phrase, the best shortcut, Jesus being that, that idea of the best shortcut, cut, what the implication of that is, Carmen, is that there are many roads to the same reality of God. Uh, he's sort of just the best shortcut for it. But that would mean that he, in essence, is on par with, again, of the other religious traditions like Buddhism and Islam. You can find that same reality about God in whatever religious tradition which you find yourself. And so it's a troubling statement to say that he's the best shortcut. And not only that, when you go on to read some of uh, the critique of Richard Rohr's theology, which is close, I mean, he, he's, and I'm not going to sit here and say, so I'm the one that has it all right. I mean, I just got done telling my students on Tuesday that to be a teacher requires a lot of humility because you just simply don't know what you don't know. And you may be missing the mark on some things, but I think in this case with Richard Rohr, it's it's relatively obvious, given some thought, where he might be missing the mark. And, and uh, primarily it is because he is reducing Jesus to sort of uh, an archetype of what our own relationship with God is supposed to be like. And he says things along the lines of, well, G Jesus simply just showed us that really the goal of all of our journeys as we kind of better ourselves is that we have to surrender our lives, thus the cross, and that in surrendering our lives, we find new birth uh, in the resurrection. And it's really about the betterment of us and finding a sense of peace within us, as opposed to the idea that Jesus defeated sin and death and all of the brutality that that is. And, and Rohr would even go on to say that if we can all sort of become the kind of people who are finding a new birth through, I'm not sure entirely what, we can actually usher in a new messianic era, sort of the Christ era that will encompass the world. And, and that idea, Carmen, is actually ripe through a lot of different theological traditions. I know there's lots of Jewish traditions that would believe there's not actually going to be a Messiah that will ever come. But really, we just have to get it right in the best possible way as human beings. And once we do, we will ourselves usher in the Messianic era. And Jesus gives us a clue about how we can best do that as human beings. But the idea that he defeated death and sin and, and that there's a new world coming as this world wraps itself up, um, that's where the difference lies. And it really does become a fundamental difference because 
you're suggesting that humans have the ability to bring in the full era of peace, love, and joy as opposed to the Messiah himself. Which is a progressive view of history versus a redemptive view. And yeah, what's revealed is. in Scripture is a redemptive view. Um, I want to I go back um, for just a moment. If, um, if, if Jesus is just the best shortcut to accessing, you know, whatever this overflow of love for the world is that, that Roar thinks is God, um, then Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when right. he is he is praying and 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 sweating drops of blood because he knows the cross is in front of him and he says father if there be any other way than drinking this cup of wrath if there be any other way could we do a little work here together and figure it out yeah i mean um, and apparently the answer is no apparently the answer is there is no other way right. I mean, we should take jesus at his word when he says no one comes to the Father except by me. No one. It's not like that is up for some kind of debate. That's exactly right, Carmen. And, and I think it uh, it diminishes what happened in that, that cross event. Like, I do sympathize with the view that one of the things we learn in that Garden of Gethsemane, uh, and, and there's two garden stories in the biblical text. There's the Garden of Eden, where the two human beings believed wrongly that they were God. And because they believed that, they introduced death into this world. And uh, and they, gr- they grasped after a divinity that was not theirs to have. And in the other garden story of the text, you have the very reality of divinity, God. God among us, the incarnation of Jesus, and he decides, as Paul says in Philippians, to let it all go and and to surrender his life to the Father and to put his life and his very spirit and his future into the hands of the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, or sort of his final words with it is finished on the cross. And we see that the road really towards the breaking free of sin is to surrender our lives, but not to like just do some sort of uh, a mushy version of surrender. It is to surrender our lives back to God, to retether ourselves to him, because only in him do we find the wholeness and the redemption from the sin that is in our lives. And so Jesus is not just a model for what we're supposed to do to have a better life. He really, in that, took on the full sin of the world somehow, and only Jesus could beat that sin. It was not us that could beat that sin. Our role in surrender is to surrender and tether our lives back to him, not to surrender to have somehow a better life. One more point on this before um, before you have to go. Um, Rohr also makes this argument that it can't be possible that Jesus is the only way to, he doesn't even use the word salvation, yeah. but that Jesus is the only way um, because there's a lot of human history before the arrival on the scene of Jesus. Okay, that's just such a gross misunderstanding of of the Trinity. It's such a gross misunderstanding of um, God's redemptive plan right. uh, over the course of all of creation. Um, so just just lay out the um, the reality of Jesus's co-eternal nature that he's you know he's present and active. Scripture contends um, or Scripture reveals at creation itself. Yeah, I mean, John in his very opening to his gospel says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and on and on from there. It's the creation story as manifested through Jesus as as part of sort of the holding together of all of creation from the beginning. And again, Rohr talks about some of those things, but it's where he goes with that that uh, begins to be problematic. But uh, 
I, I, again, understand the idea. Well, what do you do with all the people in the Old Testament? Well, read Hebrews 11. They were the keepers of the promise. Uh, Hebrews 11 talks often about faith is an ability to continue to walk out into the unknown future, believing in the promises of God that he will one day do what he said he's going to do. And so the people in the Old Testament were not left behind or somehow born on the wrong side of the cross or some of these different ideas that can be out there. They were the keepers of the covenant promise. And Jesus's uh, move with the cross and the resurrection defeated death for all people. And we have to think about sort of this theology in these terms. Again, I understand Rohr's uh, critique of the church and theology at some levels, but sometimes, Carmen, the reconstruction of theology is worse than the critique itself, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, Peter Kapsner, thank you so much for helping us sort through all of this. Um, we'll talk again next week. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. Friends, we got to take a break for Breakpoint. We'll be right back. So sometimes we uh, we recognize that God loves us, right? <clears throat> but we don't always consider that, you know, God actually likes us. God wants to spend time with us. He made a way for us to enter into his very presence. Um, he offers us himself and a restored relationship um, through Jesus Christ. He offers us his Holy Spirit. He, he likes us. He wants to be with us. Um, why do we, why do we resist that? So next up, Sid and Jeff Holtzclaw will be here to talk about their new book, Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Really Wants to Be With Us. That's next here on Mornings with Carmen. So what's your story? Um, Maybe not just your personal story, but what's your story that would actually be of encouragement, inspiration to others? Um, and not only what's your story, what what do you have to say that is unique? Well, we are uh, having a Christian Writers Conference. It's called the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference. It is going to be July 24 and 25 uh, at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. And if you register this month, you get 10% off. And so I'm inviting you to join me and Susie Larson, Karen Kingsbury, uh, Alicia Britt Sholey, and others you're going to get great one-on-one feedback uh, about how your story could make it from you know your head and heart onto the page and out into the world. So go ahead, find out more, register online today, NorthwesternChristianWritersConference.com. This is Max Locato. According to Peter, God's promises aren't just great, they are very great. They aren't just valuable, they are precious. It is God's great and precious promises that lead us into a new reality, a holy environment. They are direction signs intended to guide us away from the toxic swampland and into the clean air of heaven. They are strong boulders that form the bridge over which we walk from our sin to salvation. Promises that are the stitching in the spine of the Bible. Receive them. Allow them to soak you like a spring shower. Let's be what we were intended to be, people of the promise. Fill your heart with hope and let the devil himself hear you declare your belief in God's goodness. Because God's promises are unbreakable, our hope is unshakable. This is Max Locato. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit and 
Joining me now are Jeff and Sid Holtzclaw. They are the co-authors of Does God Really Love Me? Uh, Jeff and Sid, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. It's great to be with you. Yes, good to be here. Thanks. Absolutely. It's wonderful to have um, have you both here. We're going to tell people that they can most easily find the book at doesgodreallyliketme.com. Um, does God really like me? I might have said love the first time, but we all uh, acknowledge that God loves us, but we're not all sure that he likes us. And that is basically the point you're trying to make. So, Jeff, lead us off here. Why is it that we are willing to accept that God loves us, but we're super suspicious that he likes us? Well, I think for a lot of us, whether it goes back to early trauma, abuse, neglect, uh, the idea that God loves us really kind of bounces off us. We don't trust love. We're suspicious of love. We think love is just a, you know, a marketing scheme or something like that. But, and when we see Jesus's like ministry, he doesn't just walk around and point at people and say, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. Right. What does he do? He's, he, he meets them where they are. He's present with them in their pain and their suffering in their situation, even in their, uh, even in their sin. Um, and he's with them. And so the point of our book that we're trying to kind of describe is that God really likes us and he's present with us. And so he's offering his presence to us. And then slowly, once we really believe that God's with us, then we could start understanding, oh, maybe God actually loves us too. And that this all kind of fits together. I think another part of it too, is that, you know, we see God loves me or God loves you on signs at baseball games, football games, you know, they're on TV. And sometimes it can be said in sort of a placating or a pacifying kind of way of like, oh, God loves you. Um, I've even heard people use it in almost kind of a insulting or quiet down now, please stop talking about that God loves you kind of way. Um, and so it's there's a difference between that sort of abstract, um, pithy statement and the reality that God actually takes great delight in us. He doesn't just love us from afar, but he takes great delight in us such that he wants to even be with us. So let's, um, Sid, let's stick with that theme there. Um, this, the word with has now come up multiple times. Um, you used the word presence uh, at one point already. These are Im really important words in the conversation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, if we, um, if we look at the whole narrative of Scripture, we even get to the Gospel of Matthew, where the beginning of Matthew, the most important words that Matthew wants to share with us at the beginning of his Gospel is that his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And at the end of Matthew's Gospel, the last words that Jesus says to his disciples are, I will be with you always. And so that sense, if we read the whole narrative of Scripture with God's desire to be with us, we see it in the garden, we see it of the Garden of Eden, we see it in the end of the book of Revelation in the new city of God. All through Scripture, God is saying, I want to be with my people. I'm offering my presence to my people. And we talk a lot about joy in the book and the idea that when God offers us his presence, he's glad to be with us. And that brings us, we experience joy in his presence. So we talk about joy as being the experience of being with someone who's glad to be with us. And so it's when we can connect to God's presence with us and his desire to be with us that we can experience joy. So Jeff, let's, um, Let's stay stay on that subject of joy here for a minute because you you have to turn away from other lesser, more destructive ways of being if you are going to turn to and embrace a life of joy. Can you talk about that pivot? 
Well, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think a lot of times we are seeking false joys, which a lot of times we just call happiness. And joy and happiness are different. A lot of times you can find happiness or we seek happiness in the things around us, you know, certainly in sin and drugs and um, sex and, you know, our accomplishments, our jobs and these types of things. And so we're looking for happiness, but really we're actually looking for joy. Um, and so can we turn from the false substitutes, which are really you know, the, the Bible calls them idols, like we've given up our true source of joy. But I, I think a lot of times even our own like kind of theology gets in the way of joy because a lot of times we think, well, God is so serious and God is, you know, we're supposed to fear God and God is majestic and all these types of things. Um, and so we don't feel like joy is like an important thing. But Paul actually commands us to rejoice. Paul, Paul thinks that an essential piece of our discipleship is joy. And if we're not finding joy in the Lord, then we're probably not experiencing his presence. And there's probably things standing in the way uh, that we do, like you said, we need to turn from and seek God more fully. And I think uh, one thing that goes along with this is that when we talk about happiness, happiness is a is something that you can be experiencing all by yourself, right? Happy can be dependent on your circumstances. It can be on your frame of mind. It can be on the mood that you're in that day. But when joy is the experience of being with someone who's glad to be with you, then joy is relational. And so when we're seeking those substitutes, um, you know, those, those things that often end up leading to addiction, those are our, our seeking connection, but we don't realize we're seeking connection. Instead, we pick up these false substitutes that we believe will make us happy, but they're missing that relational connection of joy, which is being with someone who's glad to be with us. So, again, I'm talking with Sid and Jeff Holtzclaw. We're talking about their book, Does God Really Like Me? You can find it at, at DoesGodReallyLikeMe.com. Um, so I want to, I'm trying to frame a question here because God is holy. And yes. we do we do for some reason fear that instead of have that being like the flame to which the moths are drawn, right? I mean, God is holy. And so uh, I don't, I, I want to be in awe of him, like the appropriate kind of fear of the Lord. But I also want to recognize that his, uh, his holiness is perfectly satisfied in Christ. And so um, if I'm in Christ, then I can approach the Father and I can acknowledge that the Father draws near um, even now, like this, this reconnecting of the eternal with the everyday or heaven with earth. Like, can you just speak into that? Yeah, well, I think that God's holiness is absolutely essential, and, and it's really a holiness that's always connected with love. And outside of Christ, and when we're still in our sin and our shame, God's love kind of is a, is a burning love as holiness that that we that we run away from. Adam and Eve ran away from God's love and His presence, and that we, in a sense, we've lost capacity to live in God's presence. And so we talk about that that in the book, that because of sin, we lose our capacity to stand in God's presence, which is why, you know, Scripture often says, you know, if you're in God's presence, you will die uh, outside of Christ. And it's because we no longer have that capacity. We've lost the ability to do that. But in Christ, we we regain that ability. And, and that's what God always wanted. He always wanted to set up a situation where humanity and himself could always dwell and live together. And so you're absolutely right. We, these things only happen in Christ. But then when we look at like Luke 15 and other places, 
uh, there's really delight in in God. So Luke 15 is when it's the famous prodigal son, but also the lost coin and the lost sheep. And at the end of each of those parables, it says that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents, when one sinner turns and, and moves back in. So can we hold these two things together, which is God is a holy God that takes sin seriously, um, so much so that he died you know, for our sin, but then also that he delights in us and wants to rejoice over us. And, and sometimes I feel like um, our culture only wants to hold one of those two things and not both of them in tension. Either we kind of are people that just kind of fear God and run away and we're, you know, God's the judge and he's always going to, you know, condemn us. But thank goodness Jesus got us off the hook. Or you kind of have the more permissive like, oh, God doesn't mind about sin and he just wants to hang out and uh, he delights in you no matter what you do. Right. And so it, and both of those things are true when they're said together and they became false when they're separated. Absolutely. So thank you for clarifying that. Uh, we got to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Jeff and Sid Holtzclaw. They are the co-authors of Does God Really Like Me?, which you can find at DoesGodReallyLikeMe.com. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Sid and Jeff Holtzclaw. They are the co-authors of Does God Really Like Me?, discovering the God who really wants to be with us. Um, Sid, let's do this. Why don't you convince me that I belong in God's presence? Because if I don't even think I belong there, um, then I'm not going to be, you know, particularly interested in figuring out how to get there through Bible study or prayer or the community of the fellowship of God's people. Sure. Yeah, that is absolutely where we need to start is with our own identity. And so we talk in the book about uh, being created in God's image. And we actually use the word idol because when you translate the word used for image of God, it's really more consistent with idol in the ancient world. And so uh, whenever, just to go into uh, two things I want to say, so the ancient imagery and then Jesus. So the ancient imagery is that when there was a temple built to a God in the ancient world, it was said that the God didn't actually reside in that place until the idol had been installed. And once the idol was inside that temple, then it was said that the God lived there. And so when God creates humanity and he uses the, and we see in scripture that the word is idol, God created humanity in his own image. Um, that is the sense. I, I feel like that's invoking the uh, ancient imagery for an idol, which means God now dwells heaven has come to earth because in God's humanity, uh, that is the image of God or the idol of God. And now God dwells among us. So that's the first part. And then the second part is what we see in Jesus in that at Jesus's baptism, Jesus enters into the waters of baptism. And when he rises up out of the waters of baptism, heaven tears open and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove and the father speaks over him. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And so when we put our faith and hope in Christ, we are translated or we're brought into that family love, that love of now when the father looks upon upon us, he sees us in Christ and speaks those same words over us. You are my son. You are my daughter. With you, I am well pleased. So when we when we come into faith in Christ, we come into that family relationship and that delight and that pleasure and that belonging in his presence. So identity, belonging, purpose. These seem to be the uh, bells we are, uh, we are all well, the questions we're all seeking to answer and the bells you guys are clearly uh, seeking to ring here in this book, which I really appreciate. So, Jeff, let's talk about uh, the, the belonging part of this conversation, um, this belonging in God's presence. 
there's there's some people who just feel like there's a barrier to that in terms of you know they may they may acknowledge that they are a sinner they may acknowledge that they are uh, saved by grace uh, through faith in Jesus Christ but they don't really feel like in God's presence is where they belong can you speak to that well yeah I think all of us in one sense have that feeling that we don't believe it belong in God's presence. Oftentimes, most of us struggle just believing we belong, you know, in the boardroom or belong in the families that we are, you know, in or the churches. Like we, we, we all feel out of place. And we, and we talk about this throughout the book, raising questions of like, is God disgusted with me? Um, does God hate me? And really, those are questions we're all asking ourselves, not so much that, that God is asking those things. And so how can we move beyond all the self-criticism? And this is where I think like the voice, you know, of of the devil, the the accuser is the one whispering all these things, and this is goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Um, you know, did God really say that? And putting, and you know, about the the fruit, uh, putting doubts in our mind. Do you really belong here? Are you really like God? Did God do a good thing when He made you? We all have these these questions about who we are and whether we're we're good enough. And I think part of it is even if we have that sense that we belong, we, we also feel like we don't have a purpose. Um, mm-hmm. So I always think of my, my grandparents' house, you know, where you'd go in and it's like, oh, you can't go in that room. That's the dining room. And don't step on the carpet and ruin that. Or, or don't play with those figurines. Those are just for show. They're not for play, right, as a little kid. And you get this sense that like, well, I guess I belong in this house because it's my grandparents' house, but they don't really want me here and they're not letting me touch their stuff. But the story of the Bible is actually God lets us play with his stuff. He actually invites us into what we call the family business of of flourishing all of creation. God says, hey, let's do this together. And so God actually lets us uh, participate in his mission of love and life for the whole world. And, and this is something that's equally confounding or impossible to, leave, to believe for many of us, not just that we belong, but that God's actually giving us a share in his mission in the world. And so these things are, in a sense, the good news is God has come. He's overcome all the barriers because of sin, he's taken away that penalty, but he's also given us his presence and he's offering us his purposes, which are things we're all desperately looking for. What is my purpose in life? And God says, hey, come come, come be with me. I'll give you the purpose that you're looking for. The book also includes um, just lots of great help in terms of how we can meet with God in Bible study, how we can engage uh, with God in intentional prayer and live with God in community uh, alongside other believers. Um, it, it, it's a wonderful companion for the journey. Um, and so just really appreciate you guys sharing it with us today. Sid and Jeff Holtzclaw, uh, Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Really Wants to Be With Us. Thank you so much for being with us here today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. You guys can also uh, check out what they're doing at jeffreyholtzclaw.net. Jeffrey is one of those G Jeffs. So it's G-E-O. F-F-R-E-Y, Holtzclaw.net. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. So right now in Washington, D.C., the National Prayer Breakfast is underway, and uh, prayer has a unifying influence. Prayer is uh, a unifying force. And so one of the things that I hope you'll take time to um, watch and listen to today Uh, is the President of the United States seated while Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi stands at the podium and prays. Prays for the nation. Prays for the President. um, Prays for um, the will of God to be done in, among, and through us. Uh, It's a quite different optics than we saw at the State of the Union. 
Uh, and I just thought that I would lift it up to you today. Let us be a people of prayer today. Um, whatever it is that you are encountering, lead with prayer and then be led in prayer. Follow the Lord uh, where he leads today and trust him. Trust him to be present and powerful and persuasive. All right, friends, that's all we have time for today. Uh, You can grab the podcast later today at MyFaithRadio.com. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.